to Shaping the Future. In this episode, I am talking to Contour CEO Arben Kane about how big data is a vital resilience tool in responding to increased frequency and intensity of climate impacts. Arben and his team have been involved in mapping huge global disasters from earthquakes and hurricanes, with their work building the Pacific Disaster Centre, to more recently the spread of COVID-19 across the communities that span the globe. Arben talks about how big data is a vital tool that when used correctly can be a huge asset to humanity and how his team are aiming to get around manipulation and security breaches by utilising distributed ledger technology among many other innovations. There are many more episodes of the podcast being produced so please do subscribe on any of the main podcasting channels. Arben, thanks very much for talking to me today. I want to just go through talking about Contour. Can you first just tell me briefly where Contour comes from and also just then expand a bit about the capability you're working with? So Contour basically originated um, years and years ago um, through a contract with the ONR Office of Naval Research where we built basically a multi-source map viewer that kind of combined all the data sets of the regions in, in Thailand in Vietnam, and we fused them all together from a language perspective, data perspective, and put them on a map so people could actually like have an understanding of what's going on and turn on all the layers and actually digest the data sets. And that's how it started. And then that system was called Multi-Source Map Viewer, and then we continued to evolve it and it became Disaster Aware, which is now corely driven by the Pacific Disaster Center. And so I'm the, the guy behind building the tech platform, setting up infrastructure, putting modules together. And so we've been kind of the tech arm and tech muscle behind the disaster aware platform. And PDC has been basically the distribution arm to make sure that all the governments and agencies actually adopt it as a informative awareness tool for real-time situation awareness. I know you've worked with people like the UN governments, NGOs. Can you give some examples of use case? Yeah, so a simple example is like right now, currently that the COVID crisis is utilizing the NDPBA data set, which is basically a national-based data set assessment that gives you an understanding of the coping capacity from a healthcare perspective of a region like Peru or Brazil or Mexico. And for you to actually have an understanding of like how well they are able to cope with the current disaster of the COVID crisis, right? How many hospital beds, ICU beds, um, and what that means from a risk exposure perspective. And that data set is very useful because no one else actually has it. So PDC goes on-site, gathers the data, we drive the analytics, store it the right way, form it the right way, so then now you can actually visualize it and do analytics on top of it. So my next question was actually going to be about data sourcing. In this case, you're talking about hospital beds, you're talking about cases of COVID, and in other cases, you're talking about natural disasters. How do you access all these data sets? So we basically do, uh, do the research, uh, research of identifying all the possible sources of the data sets from government agencies, jointly working with them, uh, if it's OCHA, if it's uh, GDAX, and, and basically unified and almost create a standard around how to gather all those data sets and then standardize them and then figure out like how to create the episodes around it. So 
episode meaning that you have an event that occurs and then that event actually is updating like a storm um, or uh, a flood for example it continues to actually grow or reduce or the, the area actually changes so you have multiple episodes based on an event and our main goal is really about creating a high quality data validated data sets uh, that have a high resolution so that you can actually make decisions about it so that you have an understanding of the severity which then allows you to actually create an understanding of what lifelines are actually being impacted is it the power is it food resources transportation or infrastructure because the biggest picture of uh, what we are trying to solve based on the data sets we actually acquire is how to give you a situation awareness based on the priorities of impact right so that yeah. you don't get lost in the data because most people get lost in it they don't know the categories they don't understand the wind speed they don't understand you know what the flood area if, if it's good bad you know they don't understand that like just one foot of flood water can actually like you know give you a power outage within your building because all your outlets are going to be zapped right that doesn't come to people's mind uh, and so it's really understanding like how based on each event type what are the most important data sets that can we can draw from to give you actually a clear picture on what the lifelines are that are impacted so that you can make better decisions based on that. And you've just mentioned COVID and I, I know you talked about the Pacific Disaster Center. There's a difference between pandemic which just strikes the whole planet and there's the independent cases of like a, an earthquake, a, a hurricane or whatever. Can you describe how you've seen the differences between those two kinds of disaster? To me, the, the, the difference with this pandemic is the, the way I see this, like you, you have this um, laundry machine where it's spinning, right? And you have all the clothes sticking. And so you have certain dynamics of transportation, tourism, economics, supply chain that are constantly evolving and, and everything sticks and everything's just perfectly uh, balanced. And when an earthquake happens, it's almost like, you know, the washing machine might just stop for a second and certain things rumble and fall. But the whole thing keeps on spinning like you, you you don't not everything is being impacted not everything is disabled and you can still get help in from other cities other regions that actually help you with, with the situation when i look at a pandemic it's everything stopped right we're still in a still stand in every aspect tourism is done supply chains is everything's delayed from shipping from no one's ordering cars no one's buying cars no one's going to the office um and so this has truly just stopped the whole vehicle and therefore every piece of clothes has just fallen to the center as a big bundle and and it's it needs to now to be untangled and it's not going to just re-stick itself to the surface and start spinning even if it starts spinning again it's not going to stick the same way so i feel like this pandemic kind of showed us all the vulnerabilities um that we didn't want to actually um be aware of and uh a lot of people have drawn parallels between uh, the pandemic and what's going on with climate and there's a sort of a sense of accelerating climate change if you look at the way that climate change at the moment is impacting the arctic and other parts of the world quite tangibly you can see it when that starts to impact migration agriculture for example how will contour 
be able to be part of that sort of response or even warning? Well, well if, if we look at some of the migration models that we've run or in regards to what happens when, you know, agriculture is changing, it already has changed. And we are forecasting, let's say, the next three to five years of migration patterns based on climate change. What happened with Syria based on the war is nothing to what's going to happen with climate change. And we were hitting our capacity of tolerance in multiple countries in Europe that were willing to take in the migrants. And when people have nothing to lose and are dying of hunger and, and agriculture is not working because of the floods, everything that's occurring, you can't stop that migration. And so I think you're spot on. That's something that is going to hit us. And most people don't want to think about it or don't want to see this as, as a reality that is in our very near future. You mentioned the next three to five years in terms of um, what's going to happen or what you foresee. How can your technology inform policymakers, for example, or aid agencies or people who are frontline responders, those who are vulnerable? When you actually look at the data sets of saying, okay, what's happening in Guatemala or South America, and a lot of migration patterns are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, up to the United States, and it's just seen as like opportunistic migration, but people don't just leave their home. I know that. And so they leave their home because they are forced out because of other circumstances. And agriculture is not working there anymore. Climate has changed and the zones have changed and everyone talks about it, but no one is willing to truly map it, to truly validate it because science is not good for the economics. I think in regards to what Contour can do is really being able to focus on the right data sets that then correlate the storylines of the gaps that people don't see. What we're really good at is to basically make the unseen seen. And once you actually see the truth, you know, you can't unsee it. And I think that's really what, what this is about is it's being able to actually like give you the data points that correlate how climate change is already affecting migrate patterns and how it's, you know, and what the forecast is of droughts and wildfires and how that's actually now leading to the domino effects uh, that are just literally just forecast models. Okay. And I mentioned policymakers, but this kind of data, can it be fed real time to people on the ground sort of responding or, or in, in a kind of impact zone? Yeah, in real time, we can give them an understanding of what kind of changes are happening agriculture wise in a specific country and how that's correlated to actually climate change and how that's going to change actually the economics and dynamics within that country. And so that can be given to the policymakers in real time. And therefore, the policymakers can actually see, hey, if we actually support that country, we're able to reduce the possibility of risk exposure, right? Because it's really about the policymakers identifying coping capacities, especially around climate change. It's like how, what is the threshold and when is the local economic structure is actually uh, falls apart because of the climate change pattern. It's interesting because it's almost the reverse policy response we've had in some parts of Europe and even Britain, where the policy tended to be one of fear and concern that we were going to be overwhelmed as opposed to actually we can we can assist and reduce our, our long-term migration forecast if we, you know, if we intervene in the right way. So on that sense, I think the next question would be, how can this data be used for reporting to inform the public? When the public are informed, they can help move policy. Whereas at the moment, you know, there's a sort of a confusion between the, the public side and the policymakers. The concern I have is that 
most of the policymakers always have this idea of playing politics, right? That they actually have to sell an idea, or sell a concept, or sell their perspective. And I think, in my view, what speaks louder is actually impact and creating a direct correlation between my support from a public perspective to a specific impact in the region and saying, okay, well, if you support the agriculture activities in this area, this is what it means, and this is why it's good for your country and your well-being, right? I think it's really connecting that loop and have that in real time. I think I'm seeing more and more nonprofits finally embracing that and understand that people actually care to get that feedback loop in real time. They care about the accountability. They care about knowing how they were involved and how they actually made a difference because, you know, just voting for a politician or, or hoping for a policy to move forward is just you being lazy and passing it to the other guy. It's their job, right? Moving forward now <clears throat> for you, for your, for your business, for your team, what are the main priorities on the horizon? Our main priorities is really doing what we're doing. Uh, we have a very special project uh, coming to life this year, which is about interconnecting disaster management systems in the United States and therefore actually being able to draw from that data set and inform the public in a much more dynamic way. Mm -hmm. So think of situation awareness infused with chatbots and AI so that I can actually deliver you situational awareness because it matters to you. So it's your street, your neighborhood. I can tell you that, you know, what actually is happening in that specific area instead of you watching CNN weather channel or something like that. And, and you're trying to figure out how does that relate to me? That is an old technology, old way of media format. And with what we now have going on with, with all the tools in our pocket, it makes no sense to utilize technology that is uh, outdated. We now have the location data, the information that is necessary to inform you more intellectually and in a more profound way that relates to you so that you can feel like you, you have the right information at the right time so you can make better decisions. We're not going to tell you what to do. We just want to make sure that you know all the yeah. facts. One of the things what tends to be more in the news is misuse of data by large companies. And you must have a lot of opportunity to collect data or to have data which most people would have a very high commercial value for the wrong reasons. How do you navigate away from those kinds of situations? Or protect data we don't touch any data that has specific identity information associated with it because that itself is just a no-go it's, it's about having ethics that and and making sure that those ethics are being pushed across the whole company and and making sure that you work with companies or other contractors that have the same um ethics yeah rule book and i think that 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 is always kind of the guiding rule. You can never forecast who's playing by the book, who's not. Um, but if the intention is is genuine, you know, that's the right approach, and that has worked for for us so far. And one of, the, I mean, one of the things that interests me particularly is this idea of live reporting when events are occurring. I know you've worked with NGOs on the ground. Have you had any interactions with reporting for events like a, you know, Hurricane Sandy or something like that? Yeah, so from a life reporting perspective, what happens is that being able to have an understanding of like where the people are that are in need. What we learn through the disaster logistics, because at the end of the day, it's all logistics that we're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it's not like we can prevent the disaster. It's we're truly trying to just contain it, right? We're trying to figure out like how to 
make sure that the, the damage is not as big as it could be. And with the reporting, what is very helpful is being able to actually activate people in that specific area that are related to that specific disaster and how they actually are more willing to help because they know it's actually happening and it's more real for them. Because if you watch a sandstorm somewhere on TV, and you're like, there's a sandstorm that's affecting 2 million people. It sounds surreal to you. It's like you're watching a YouTube video, right? Like you cannot connect to it. But if you're in an area where a wildfire is happening, you can smell the fire. It's very real. And it's really about like hyper-local information is one of the most important part about disaster management because that's when it gets real. It's relevant to them and it's impactful to know fast and accurate data that actually matters to you. Your hyperlocalization is is very interesting because if we have an impact here and it makes the news, it dies, it's an event, it goes away and we renormalize. But when you can start linking up events that are going on in different places and really bringing those stories almost in a a continual stream and you realize that this is not just start stop start stop it's a continual range of impacts that are going on globally i think then the next time you come around to vote you have to ask what are we doing about this in the context of contour for example is that a case for why the tools the outputs the the knowledge that's coming out needs to be democratized it can't just go to a set of people it needs to be part of the system of our adaptation of our response to climate change fully you know i have these two brilliant friends they said we're we're transforming humanity from a accumulation economy into an economy of abundance right and it's interesting to me because they're the, for the first time they brought to my attention that the word copy that you know gutenberg copied the books word copy comes actually from uh, is not copying, it's actually copy is knowledge. What that means is that he wanted to distribute knowledge, knowledge to everyone. So it's not just given to a few who can afford the book, right? And I think the same thing has to be done with information. If you look at the current internet and you look at everything, even your iPhone or Android phone, none of that would exist unless we had a open source community that built Unix and made it what it is today. You're seeing the same dynamics that are occurring with Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies. It is community building, the community actually embracing it that actually allows its value to be held so that there's no central entity, like you saw the Twitter hack, that's exactly an example of a central entity being brought down because it's central. If you have a distributed structure, you cannot attack a distributed structure. We are a distributed species. That's how we behave. And so when I'm working with Contour on even how to infuse blockchain technology to make sure that no one steals certain data sets or everyone has access to it, those are the, the things that we're thinking about. It's like how to infuse it in a way that there is a control mechanism of access, yeah. but also a control incentive mechanism of how to make sure that when people are contributing information, that they are incentivized to do so without actually destroying and making it a greedy mining process, right? Even when I look at greed, everything seems to have its place. Like if there was no greed, for example, with Bitcoin, you would have not had one of the fastest GPU and ASIC 
uh, processor evolutions in the last 10 years because it was greed that drove that forward. And now you have AI engines that are way faster and GPU card processors that are way faster than they've ever been because you had this massive capital infusion into cryptocurrencies, into uh, AMD and NVIDIA and all the uh, graphic cards that basically allows us now to do all kinds of data modeling that wasn't even possible just seven, eight years ago. Are you using distributed applications in Contour at the moment? We're working with uh, IOTA as well as with uh, Zen Horizon on infusing basically some of the data sets that we, we have that need to be either secured or need to basically be put into a data bundle and make sure that only certain entities have access to it and securing their identity information. So there's a couple projects we're working on. We'll be announcing them uh, later this year on how, how we're actually creating some of those data models with IOTA as well as this Horizon. Great, it'll be really interesting to talk about. Well, look, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about all this. I feel that like we could go on <laughs> a lot further. But, it's a big um, subject. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact us for not just in the next 10 years, but it looks like the next 100 to 200 years, uh, we're going to basically feel, well, we're not going to be around, but humanity is going to feel the impact of what, what we've done. But I think um, it's going to give us the opportunity to lay out the new path forward, I guess, of data, technology, information, um, be more responsible with it, um, because it really is about us being the advocate of, of the world we live on. And I think... That, that is our mission. That's our goal is, okay, we are the ones that actually are representing something that's very fragile and uh, is the true mother of all of us. And that's what I don't understand is how we revolt against the mother that actually gave life to us. Mm -hmm.